Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Kenya's biggest conversation that broadcasts live every weekday morning from 6 to 10 a.m. on Spice FM. Hit subscribe for more thought-provoking conversations with your hosts Eric Latif, Ndu Oko and C.T. Muga and who's who of an eclectic mix of guests from the world of politics, policy, business and culture. This is a Situation Room podcast. Enjoy. We have a new guest who's joining us for the show this hour. Caroline Gaita is the executive director of Mzalendo Trust. They have just uh, published a report looking into the 2022 election and how democracy played out in the 2022 election. We'll be discussing that, uh, negotiated democracy. Welcome to Kenya's Biggest Conversation. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's been a while. Last mm-hmm. time I was here, I think it was immediately after August. We hadn't gone to the Supreme Court. Yes. Yes. You got busy, and so we gave you some space. I'm happy to be back. <laughs> and now you're back with a full yes. report, yes, leaving others behind. Impact of negotiated democracy on inclusive politics in Kenya. You know, the thing we call inclusive politics, Caroline. Mm-hmm. Now you've come again and again. Mm-hmm. Enjoy situation room. Mm. You come a company. Mm-hmm. Shareholders. shareholders. Yes. <laughs> Are you paying? Have you bought your shares? Walo walipanda begu ndi wanarudi mara ya pili. Ndi watafuna. Ndi watafuna. Walo wengine asa watakuja. Watakuja badai. Wachukue kidogo 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 ili mebaki. Yes. Karibu. Tell us about this 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 particular report. All right, um, and let me start by just really acknowledging how happy I am to be back and glad that you give us this opportunity to discuss the report. And I think your background as you're introducing this session of the show really did it, that in these elections we saw changes to the Political Parties Amendment Act, we saw the introductions of um, new new issues you know, around negotiated democracy, consensus building, polling to determine who would be the right candidate. We replaced the word primaries in the political party process with nominations. Um, and of course, the whole background around the campaign spending, <coughs> the capping of campaign spending limits and the failed attempts to get to the campaign, to get the campaign financing act uh, effective in the 2022 elections. So it's against that background that <coughs> we decided to do this research to really look at all these processes, um, a triad of those processes, and see how then they impacted the participation of uh, women, the young people, and the persons with disability in the 2022 general elections. Interestingly, you've used the words negotiated democracy. Yes, because in essence, it's not a new um, concept, especially since the advent of devolution, because we've seen it at play in the northeastern eastern regions. We've also seen it in um, some counties like Migori, where you have one or two minority ethnic groups and a big majority group. And we've seen it uh, even in um, ordinarily normal what I would call normal counties, but where you have a majority and a minority group. And the idea has been how do you avoid conflict Mm. by ensuring that you perhaps agree on how the positions of power within that county or within that region is going to be distributed. 
And so um, you've seen where there's an agreement that um, if one community within that county gets the governor, perhaps the deputy governor needs to come from the different community. Mm. Um, in Northeastern, there has been an issue of clans. How do clans negotiate the different positions within the county to make sure that there's a sense of inclusion, but most importantly also to avoid conflict as had been witnessed before. So increasingly since the promulgation of the constitution, mm. it, it, it emerged as a, a method that's perhaps more peaceful than um, competing for these positions as was the case before. You know when you say negotiated democracy or yes. negotiation, mm. uh, one presupposes that there is a conversation between yes, two so, parties. So We have seen that in the north eastern <laughs> part of the country yes. where, well, it's sort of rotational. Yes. This is the clan that's in power today, the other one will come next time. Mm -hmm. In those other communities that or counties that you talk about, Migori, for instance, yeah. was there really a conversation between the Lua and the Kuria that, you know, you get the governor, we get deputy? Or is it just trying to accommodate and so, trying to make sure that this candidate then also gets votes from the other side? So it's it's more of the accommodation and, and uh, you've rightly uh, picked out Migori. But if you look at, it might not have been so prevalent in 2022, but if you go back to 2013, the idea then, you know, there was the whole conversation, especially the Korea community, was tr to try and accommodate them. But why we brought in the word uh, negotiation is because within, within the 2022 elections, we then saw the political parties amendment leading to this new <coughs> monster or big behemoth called coalition parties the coalition political party <laughs> coalition political party <laughs> and th within that coalition political party and you're seeing it now you see a lot of people are now courageously coming out and saying you know i was asked to step down i was promised this mm -hmm. and that's really what this um research sought to find out that who are the people who increasingly had to step down and part of it actually was when the primary the nomination processes we realized that a lot of women especially top women were you know were stepping aside to accommodate especially the men in the elections and were curious to then see how many of these um not really how many, but how was this whole process affecting uh, these women and the young people? And so that negotiation within the coalition mm. is what gave rise to the title. Mm. If, if at all there was that um, conversation, conversation, that was also something that we sought to find out. Were these women in, or youth or persons with disability in that room when this conversation was taking place or did they receive... Mm. Um, some requests outside the room yes it could be i mean a double question here yes so then in its true form if you look at negotiated democracy mm -hmm. do we see then negotiated democracy playing out in its true form when you talk about some people then being asked to give up their seats or give up their position in order for somebody else to come in is that really democracy as a result of this negotiation or is it elbowing out that's the first part of it mm -hmm. and then even with this noise because that's what it is during a campaign during election we hear a, t a lot of noise but are we able thereafter and maybe that's one of the results of this report mm -hmm. are we able to see the steady but compounded progression 
of some of the elements of democracy having played out, that you look at the period from the last election and you look at where we are today, can you look at progression and say, yes, actually, we've, you know, come some rungs up or have we gotten, you know, some rungs below mm. from the things that we see? Take away the noise, take away the cacophony from all of this behemoth that you talk about of, yeah. you know? Are you able to see a steady progression or do you see regression in some of these things that we hope will then all lead towards this democracy that everybody seeks for? Okay. Let me let me start with the last bit of the questions. Do we see any progress? In terms of the elections, especially the nomination processes, I think for the first time um, we had what I would call largely peaceful party nomination processes. Mm -hmm. If you recall in 2017 and in 2013, it's been a chaotic process <coughs> where, um, you know, in terms of parties uh, electing who would be their candidates was a really chaotic process. Mm. But this process seems this, this whole uh, coalition arrangement and the new nomination process and the whole aspect of either identifying the best candidate through a polling or a consensus or a um, table discussion seems to have given us a largely peaceful nomination process. But the question at the back of it has been at what cost? Mm. And that is really the question that we need to be answering, that was it a decision that was participatory? We always say that uh, one of the best provisions around our constitution is the element of public participation, including in the universal suffrage in terms of electing our people. Mm. And so where you have a process that where a few people, and they're mainly men, because if you look at the political party leadership, except now, the, now we have 90 political parties, so there could be an additional number that has more women in leadership. But if you look at the big 10 political parties, very few of them have women at the top or even women at the governing body. And so it means that a lot of these decisions are being made in boardrooms by men. Um, so the positive is maybe the peaceful nature of the party nomination processes, mm. but I think the negatives far outweigh the process in terms of uh, lack of a participatory framework. You know, I want to read some excerpts <coughs> from um, this report, eh? yes. because you raise several issues, ex especially in the executive summary. One, you look back at the effect of the Political Parties Act, where you say that uh, through the Political Parties Act uh, Amendment Act of 2022, Parliament expanded the space for negotiated democracy by introducing the unconstitutional provision of indirect nominations and potentially legalize an electoral offense of belonging to more than one political party at a time. Also bringing about a duplication of roles between the Office of the Register of Political Parties and the IEBC regarding timelines and management of party certification of nomination rules, membership lists, party lists, and then creating a conflict in the Elections and Political Parties Acts. That is on one. Then you also uh, cite the issue of uh, election campaign financing. And you say that uh, among the political class, there is no appetite for regulating election campaign financing. The other side of that coin was that the electoral electorate <coughs> wanted to be treated mm -hmm. for them to support an aspirant or candidate, making the financing of one's campaign inordinately expensive, especially for youth and women who are unable to 
finance their campaigns. Therefore, this means that the um, unintended consequence here is those who are already marginalized end up being more marginalized. Yeah. The youth and women. Higher zoning, you say. It was not overtly practiced by political parties, but it, because it was clear it would be an electoral offense. However, in areas considered particularly party or coalition strongholds, there was a lot of intimidation and threats of aspirants belonging to an opposing party or coalition. In other situations, it seemed that parties self-censured, self-censored where they felt it was not a party stronghold and therefore they gave little support to their own members in their own party. Basically, this report is like showing us the whole concept of negotiated democracy as was practiced in our last year election ended up with very many people who are victims, including democracy itself. Um, I think that's a good summary um, because let me start with the issue of campaign financing then get back to the zoning. Mm. So on the issue of campaign financing, it's one of the areas that we and other partners really campaigned around, advocated around. And this is informed not just by the fact that there has been an act since 2013 that has not been operationalized, and the fact that since 2013 there has been no regulation. So part of the campaign we were doing was to then ask Parliament to pass those regulations, which of course didn't go through. As we were doing this, you may recall that the IEBC also... Um, released the gazette notice around the spending limits which for all intents and purposes were all also um, very astronomical were mm. really astronomical and then finally just around the same time Zalendo and other partners also did release a report on the cost of politics in Kenya and we had identified what it would cost you to run for the four legislative positions of member of parliament women rep member of uh, <coughs> county assembly and the senate and these figures capped you know at top at 35 million for a senator minimum at 3 million for an mca 18 million for a member of a single constituency 22 million for a women's assembly these are figures that are really out of reach mm. for most people and this was in 20, in terms of the 2017 elections and what we were seeing what we were seeing in the in that report was that the cost of politics is really changing the landscape of politics in this country because money is really what is now the determining factor. And what that means is that if you don't have money, and in a lot of cases women, young people, persons with disability are the ones without that source of income, mm. without that, so that uh, level of collateral, without that level of security. It means that the playing field is already unfair even before you put out your name to run. Mm. On the issue you've talked about the, treat, the treating of citizens, <clears throat> from that research, uh, especially on the cost of politics, we identified that um, politicians actually spend a large chunk of that cost on people, handouts, harambees, uh, demands. You know, once you decide to run, there's a church fundraiser, there are all these resources <laughs> that you'll need to give. And if you don't, your competitor will. Mm. And your competitor will because they have more money. So that changes the landscape, already tilts the ground in favor of those with money. And in most cases, those with money are those that have more experience mm. and ordinarily male. And we can see the results of the 22 elections in terms of the gender numbers. 
now in terms of the zoning so in, in to to respond to your question as to whether this was really a good approach I, th- I, th- I think the answer is no mm. that we may have had harmony but at what cost in terms of these other things that we have been trying to do to enhance the participation of the special interest groups in the political processes and more often than not you will find that um, even when the women have proven or the young people have proven themselves um, that they can do the job mm. the politics you know money still comes into effect and what I keep reminding people and especially with these elections is that we need to be cautious not to limit ourselves to this perception of the cost of politics around the elective positions because we are also seeing how this then unfolds outside the electoral process mm. as now the same very well resourced people come out and start looking for other positions outside government so you are perpetuating a sense of a small clique of people who own the government system. or the system mm. in any format if you're not in this position then you can be in the next position and the next where does that leave the rest of the group that you know, is it's, largely it's been argued mm-hmm. that uh, we and our politicians are hewed from the same, same, same basic materials, meaning they represent us. It's yes. been put in many other ways. So even as we talk about these processes that we sometimes find a bit abhorrent, there is that side that puts across this discussion. However, I would like to ask, because I'm asking myself this question, when we say that our systems and the people we elect are representatives of us, the question is really how how representative are they and how much of a choice do we really have? Because there's the assumption that there's a blanket choice that people have in determining some of these things. And it's presented as such. And we speak about it often enough <coughs> that the point where one believes one actually has a choice. But the question is, how is it? We talk about negotiated democracy. Is it? representative of the traditions of those people their aspirations the things that they wish to achieve when we look at the systems that we have and what has been promulgated and what we now consider the norm and how it has evolved over time how representative is this all right um so the question has been are are we having a selective or an elective democracy Mm. and that really is at the crux of this because the whole essence of party primaries, for example, is for citizens to be able to choose the candidates that they would want to be on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we know that has been messy in the past, because in the past, before this act, you'd have certain individuals being members, in quotes, because uh, they're not members, of multiple. You know, they would participate in multiple party primaries. So you'd be thinking that there's a whole set of people that went to this party, that party, and the next party, but it's the same group. Mm -hmm. So they're not really representing the citizens of that that space, Mm. but they're actually just uh, monetizing a process to be able to benefit from it without really factoring in the needs of the people. They're business people. Exactly. So, the money. That's one challenge. The second challenge is Kenyans' participation in political parties. If you ask a lot of people, they are not 
members of political parties and if they are they don't take their participation in there very seriously they are not <coughs> very interested in knowing who are the leaders in those political parties how did that leadership get into the space how are they utilizing the political party funds um, political party parties are supposed to utilize 30% of their party funding towards special interest groups. Those questions don't get asked because Kenyans have not identified that space as one of the areas that they should be focusing on. And so then um, the question as to whether our leadership is really representative, mm -hmm. I would say not 100%. And look at the 2022 elections, 80 million, 8 million people not voting. Who is representing this category of 8 million because it means that within what we had in terms of the elections they they saw no choice to make and opted to to stay out of it as to the question whether we are the leadership that we get out I, I tend to agree with that analysis because the bigger challenge within our political space uh, even going by that request for treats or going by that request for handouts request for money is the integrity of the electoral process but that also is problematic if we frame it like that because then it assumes that we are blind to these other issues that are facing citizens you know like the cost of living and all this and what needs to be done to address those challenges because in advanced democracy those daily decisions are not things people will be thinking about as they go into the polls but here if you are thinking about bread and butter mm -hmm. bread and butter will take priority over either going to vote or will determine whether you need to go to a political rally or you'll vote for a certain person if will give you the money mm. yeah time for us to take a break 28 minutes to nine caroline gaita executive Thank director you of Mzalendo Trust is our guest this morning. They've just released a report called Impact of Negotiated Democracy on Inclusive Politics in Kenya. Leaving others behind? That's a question. This is the Situation Room. The only way to start your day. Spice. Conversation with Caroline Gaita from Mzalendo Trust talking about negotiated democracy as was witnessed in the 2022 general election. Were there positives? When it comes to negotiated democracy, as you've listed here and as you've defined in your own report, mm -hmm. what are their positives? Um, yes, and um, I did allude to one of them, which was a fairly harmonious and... Um, so there was peace. <laughs> a harmonious uh, nomination process. It also served to secure uh, certain um, leaders, you know, uh, positions in certain regions. And we've seen this with some of the top women who are now governors. I think we saw this in Ho in Homer Bay, where we now have a female governor. We also had um, a number of women get their seats as members of single constituency. So, yes. Um, there were positives, just not as many as uh, the negatives. Are. As the negatives, but not and, and also not as many in favor of the women, of the special interest groups as they were in favor of the men. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, is apparent about our electoral system is how much we focus on the electoral body that is charged with the duties and functions of running our elections. Mm -hmm every year rather than the system itself. I'm going to explain what I mean. 
right now we are already discussing IEBC and what's supposed to become of IEBC. And yet the process that we use for in our elections essentially remains the same. Now, does it represent an inflexibility of mind to explore other ways of actually providing an election that would reduce these inequalities and issues that we have? Because there are, forget the Western way of voting and the Western way of thinking, there are other countries that have over time evolved, they've tried this, abandoned, tried, abandoned, and found ways that accommodate the ethnicity, the languages, the differences, the traditions, and so forth. Now, we have a system that is not really very, very different from the one that we have in the West. Now, there's something called the limited preferential voting. Okay? It's practiced in Papua New Guinea. Uh, my colleagues and I have heard me, uh, uh, well, the, my colleagues have heard me say this every <laughs> once in a while. Well, I also heard you, you included. I also heard myself. <laughs> when I was speaking, I said, it is that you saying this. I said, yes, yes, I am the one who's saying this. Mm. Well, when, because of the ethnicity, this particular country has over 850 languages, yes. different languages, okay? They're only around 11 million people. But you don't just vote. You know, there was this issue of when you have a clan and they have agreed that this is their candidate, can you, for instance, send Eric as a representative of the clan and say, you know, as we have 20 votes, I've come here to vote on behalf of the 20 people. Okay? As an experiment. They moved from that to, okay then, how then, even when we agree, then can we all go and vote as we had agreed? Then they said, no, no, why don't we say this? Eh? As we elect, when you go to the different clans, I'm talking about a member of parliament, for instance. Mm. Why don't we rank it and say, okay, look, you have three options. When you vote, there's the position where you can vote for choice number one, choice number two, choice number three. So when you aggregate who's supposed to be the winner, the one who gets the number one position the most is the one who ends up being the winner. Meaning, if I go to a place, lose clan, where I'm not favored, I, I will not tell them to elect me. I just say, please, just give me number three. Because, mm -hmm. uh, yes, give your son this one or give me number two. Mm. But it enables people to have that flexibility of mind. So you can even tell who the preference is. But in this case, the preference is one person and that one person only. And that particular uh, system is carried on even with the election of, say, in our case, would be of governors and of the president. So you have a preference. In this region, you can actually tell this guy was the most popular. This was number two. This was number three. Now, it may seem tedious. But the process of giving people the actual choice of determining the preferential way in which they want to choose is among the many choices that are available. Now, if those who talk about the electoral system and how we hope to improve it keep talking about the same thing, but focus on the people who are going to run it, because that's what we do, we really will not have any real change in our electoral system, will we? <laughs> No, and partly because, you know, we also look at elections as an event. So a lot of attention goes into the elections the last year of the electoral cycle, as opposed to beginning addressing those issues immediately after the elections. But in terms of this preferential voting process, um, if you look at one of the methods that was utilized during the party primaries last year, it was a polling process that was adopted by some of the political parties. Mm. If I understand you correctly, we are then saying perhaps that's a method that we could we could utilize at a large scale, you know, and ask the certain people or through a polling system to choose who is the 
most top preferred. candidate, most preferred candidate, and the rest drop out and opt, for example, to go for MCA or mm. to go for MP as opposed to governor. Um, where does that leave the citizen choices or will they have taken part in the polling process? It's, it's the citizens who actually... They, 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 they they're the ones who are polling. Yes, they're the ones, so who, they're are the ones who are polling. Yes, exactly. Mm. Just like we go to vote. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Here we had blue for president, green for governor, yellow for MP, pink for MCA, uh, purple for women rep. Now, alongside that, even on that sheet of paper, you'd have preference. You so, write number one, number two, number three. Exactly. You say this one is my number one, this one is my number two, number three. Mm. So, there's the understanding. What am I saying? I'm not saying this is a perfect system. Yeah. I am saying that when you want to solve a problem that we seem to keep discussing year in year out mm. and we're discussing the same thing year mm. in year out mm. should we not change this thing look at different ways yes exactly but i think city that's actually that's what caroline is saying if you look at that polling, polling. system that was introduced by political parties mm. that's trying to expand away yes well the preferential in of 11 million people in papua new guinea speaks highly about those people 11 million people there are 83 tribes 850 850 okay. languages 800, just so that you get 850 it. languages in 11 million people okay and then uh, when it comes to 11 million people going to vote you're still not going to have even just one person who's going to emerge he's going to be you've got the heart of the matter <laughs> now if that is their population the level, and of, the the level the of disagreement exactly and, and the complexity we don't have 850 languages in this country mm. our complexity in that regard is less and yet we have more conflicts yes. and disagreements this is the point with a very um with around 43 44 tribes yes as opposed to 850 and so the question then we should be asking ourselves is what are some of the lessons we could learn from the 22 elections positive lessons that we could learn and perhaps we could explore and and take further because um, regulatory frameworks legislation they're all dynamic they can change they can be changed to accommodate um, developments to accommodate changes and part of what this research then ought to do is help start that discourse is polling a good option is it a good option not just in terms of creating harmony with, within the party primaries but yeah. also addressing the issue of uh, too many remember these elections we also had too many, candidates, many candidates very many mm -hmm. candidates mm -hmm. of addressing too many candidates mm. and at what point is it done because one of the other issues that came out as we were discussing this research also is around this this process of negotiating or polling at what point should it be done because then uh, when you're looking at the cost of the politics, there are a lot of people who've invested in the process up to that point. Yeah. And once they drop out of the process, there's no mechanism. I guess it's a risk, but there's no them. mechanism to compensate them. But you could take the risk of a promise. I, I thought uh, the, the, the people who vie for this electoral position is voluntary. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> and they know. Yes, I, I, I thought you could get or not get. Yes, exactly. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's only one person who's going to emerge the winner. That is correct. Yes. But remember, a lot of see what you're seeing in the papers this week. Yep. I was asked to drop out yep. and promised with a promise of. Yep. But you have no control of those promises because you don't have the guarantee mm -hmm. that you will form government. 
actually. and that you can fulfill those promises those are risks so, so, and maybe so they're good are, risks so but maybe they're mm. good risks but the disenfranchisement that comes out of it mm. um especially for this category of people mm. then and especially if had they gone the whole race they, they had won. an option of winning because here we are not saying remember <laughs> in addition to that polling you're also having the process where you're in a coalition and you're asking and one zoning. person from this political party to step down in favor of a candidate from another political party which mm. is slightly different because on their own they probably had a chance yep. for their party yeah. you know when you talk about choice really <laughs> being limited the choice isn't limited it isn't even confined <laughs> if you are in a party and that is a process that they apply and you disagree you have choices you can leave the party i'm not saying this flippantly mm. i'm saying that we have seen people who have followed that path we don't agree with this as we're going to go elsewhere mm. yeah and and sure enough we we did see them because again in these elections you have the highest number of people who run as independents yes and you also have the highest number of people in parliament as yes. independents so but going back it's the cost this, of it all is yeah is this the the is is an independent route what we want to encourage or should we be working towards strengthening our political party processes you know you ask a pertinent question and the question is to what end because yeah. the strengthening of it or the not strengthening of it thereof is uh, predicated on this understanding that the party that adopts certain systems want to adopt some that will benefit of, of be benefit. of great benefit to them okay so now that benefit is it anchored on immediacy or is it something that focuses on grow the growth of that party longevity uh, promoting democracy or whatever because if you look at whatever it is that we are discussing right now and our political process mm. would you say that our process uh, is one that seems to focus on promoting democracy <laughs> in what way mm. in whichever way you want to look at it in the mo take a completely democratic perspective cast your mind to the winds and then and, 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 and let it float around in whichever uh, direction you want it and, and, and let's see what it picks up because if you again go to the papers yes mainstream media print media and even if you listen to uh, whatever media outlet you have mm. the one struggle that we seem to have in this country is we are constantly battling with our constitution it's like this constitution is a bit erroneous so we must tweak it and we must change it and we must make it work mm. so we have an idea and the, and the constitution gets in the way there's a way in which we want to appoint people the constitution is getting in the way so how do we work it we change it now the moment this conversation takes root and we can see it happening even if it's not talked about but we can see it happening what does it tell you do we have a political class of those who are involved in our politics or who participate in it who want to go beyond promoting their own self-interest no See? <laughs> so, no. yeah. that was an emphatic no yes it's a simple enough response yeah. yes so it means the discussion of democracy mm. if we are to have it mm. has to be a completely different one focused on the citizen yes the voter yes which is why i want to bring in that conversation yes 13 million registered voters opted not to participate in that election mm. that was a strong That's voice a huge number should that voice mm mean something 
in future elections should they like we're saying introduce options should you have an option down there that says none of the above i'm not inspired enough and if a majority of people say none of the above then Mm -hmm. cancel that election let's have another one bring fresh candidates wouldn't that be a wonderful thought if we had the choice uh, of <laughs> yes meaning nah, you have the, ca- the list mm. page mm. one page two of candidates and you just go to the bottom none of this that's so, your choice so, yeah so for us to get there obviously it, it's important for us to go to the root of it and identify why this 8 million to 13 million didn't vote didn't find it necessary was it the choice of candidates was it the process was it that they didn't register mm. or was it that like you're saying they just didn't feel that any of the candidates put forward represented them but it's interesting that out of six positions you'd feel nobody really represents your interest whether at mca level or at governor level or at presidential level and perhaps then the question should be um should we have options or 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 educating citizens because part of it is one really understanding Mm. the role of the different positions because Mm. i want to believe that if people for example understood what mcas ought to do or need to do at that very low level they would perhaps invest more in knowing who their mcas are and if they opt not to elect anyone else they would at least elect the mca Mm. The same would happen for a governor mm. if you are invested in a county and decide that for this i on, i'm only interested in my county and therefore i'll only give my vote to the governor mm. because that's where my interests are i have proximity to the governor i mm. can access the governor i can ask questions i can participate but overall and in response to the constitutional questions i think the the biggest challenge is what we have defined or what we have taken to be public participation that we've it made it very cosmetic it doesn't count people's voices don't matter and with time you then see the level of apathy if mm. even when the basic public participation process towards a legislation or towards a county development plan your voice doesn't count why should it count at that high level so a lot of investment needs to then go towards sensitizing citizens on the rules on why it's important for them to participate on how they can hold their leaders to account because if there's a level of accountability and i know that's perhaps uh, a long shot but Mm. if there's a level of accountability also on the leadership and citizens feel that they can do something the constitution envisaged that when they put uh, when 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 the framers of it put the recall clause but mm. you know what has happened with that recall clause mm. but if we give life to some of these provisions around recalling around um, giving life to chapter 6 and you see that the leaders you want are the people that are in office there might be an effect it could be slow but with that, with time, we could begin to reap the dividends of good leadership, and citizens would be more invested, um, not just in terms of the short-term gains around an electoral process, but very invested in a long-term gain of the leadership that they put into office. I think it ought to be a requirement for the state yeah. to look at how to make sure that you you have you have brought citizens on board, because I go back into this. Mm-hmm. 13 million and the 13 million i mean 13 million eligible kenyans who should have voted in the last election did not there are those who opted not to even register as voters Mm. four million of them Mm -hmm. 
And then there are those who had registered as voters. They didn't turn up about 8 million of eight them. 8 million. Okay. Mm. So that's a high number. And that should tell something to the state. What is it that you're saying? So what? how do you reach out to those? How do you find out exactly why they chose not to participate? Is it What's the reason for their apathy? And an and interesting observation also around these numbers was that in these elections also, the number of registered young people also dropped, you know, from 2017. So if you have the generation that we are quoting as the future generation not invested in a process that informs their future, then there's a very big problem. And we do need to go out there and narrow the gap between the government, between the uh, duty bearers and between the citizens because that seems to be a very large gap and with time if it's not addressed then where are their issues getting addressed because at some point there'll need to be a solution mm. to the issues they face and if they feel that their voices don't count in the mainstream issue then we are we are also quoting certain challenges in the future you know Eric, the point you're making and why it's actually extremely valid is this huh for there to be a vote of no confidence of any meaning, we normally require two-thirds, yep. okay? Yep. Now, 13 million mm -hmm. is a really serious percentage if you look at the registered voters. So it may not be two-thirds, but if the trend continues, we are seeing a growing vote of no confidence mm -hmm. in the system and its outcome. Yeah. And it's not a voice that can be ignored. Mm -hmm. Because you can actually argue conversely that had this group voted, Perhaps their electoral outcomes would have been different. Would be mm. different yes. yes. And even now, they're not yeah. voting has made it different. Yep. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It's not a figure that is not impactful. It's very, very impactful, impactful. and it's significant. It is. It is. And 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 there is need. So for us, at on this side of um, civil society organisations, it's really going back to the drawing board and trying to identify what are these issues that led us to these 13 million people mm. not vesting in the elections and trying to address them but then also the need to start addressing these issues now but i think like i've said the most important is narrowing that gap the government at across the two levels has a responsibility to to really try and um, put in place mechanisms to make these voices heard because mm. we also can't be talking as by the title of the report um leaving no one behind but we are leaving a large segment of the population mm. not just in terms of the decisions that we make but ensuring that they're actually not involved in any decision making process mm. and those are the questions that we need to be asking, asking ourselves as as we move forward and as we now get into the next set of elections and answering in the future isn't yeah. it answering mm. yes caroline congratulations on this report thank you very much um clearly you took some a lot of time to put together the report thank you very much and now it's time mm -hmm. for you to relax a bit and start <laughs> watching some tv how about that you made it to the end of today's podcast you clearly ooze stamina guess what just hit subscribe at standard media podcast apple podcast google podcast spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from our podcasts drop daily from me and the team catch you next time bye-bye Thank you.